Good morning, all of life. It's good to see you. I recognize there may be some dissonance between the good news that I'm going to bring you this morning and the sweater that I have on. You actually have two people looking at you simultaneously, so maybe you need to come under the conviction of Dwight Schrute. I don't know if that's the case, but I would rather you came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son this morning. So we're going to get right into it. I'm, I'm excited about this text. I've been excited about Titus chapter 2, which is where we will be uh, this morning. I want to start with this. And so, and I recognize some of the, the dissonance here is this goofy guy is in this goofy sweater. There are going to be moments where I'm, I'm leaning in in seriousness, and maybe you need a little relief for that, so just glance down. <laughs> Come back up and we'll continue the conversation. In my 44 years, um, I have lived in some pretty seriously sinful ways. Maybe this resonates with you. Maybe you too, for a period of your life, have, have given in to things like addictions, um, sexual immorality, regular drug use, drunkenness for me was a, a large part of my ongoing story. But I've also lived in these seasons personally, some short, some long, some felt more minor, some more major, though all are serious. I've lived in these seasons of deception. I've lived in these seasons of blatant anger. I've lived in seasons of bitterness. I've lived, lived in seasons of even rage, um, pride that, that, that was uh, to me and to the people around me. I've lived as an entitled individual, uh, greedy. I've, I've spent even portions of my life um, stealing. And these, all of these things, all of these various kind of ups and downs in my, in my life they, they consistently haunted me with this question, will I always be this way? Will I always be like this? Will my mind always work this way? Will I always struggle with the things that I'm struggling with? And I wonder if it's similar for you. I wonder if you too are haunted by this question at times. Will it always be like this for me? Will I always struggle in the ways that I am struggling? Will I ever escape this sin pattern that is consistently dogging me? Perhaps you're here today and you, you, don't, you don't think that you need to change. I've lived in that season too. Blatant pride. You know, the, the, the issues around me are a result of the people around me. And so it's my significant other, it's my kids, it's my parents, it's my roommates, it's my employer, it's my employees, it's my neighbors. It's just not me. I've lived in those seasons too. And, and here is, I think, the good news that all of us woke up, rolled out of bed this morning for, and drove down um, to this building. There is good news that Jesus, the incarnate one, the one who, God, who has taken on flesh, there is good news that he wants you and I to hear. And it starts not feeling like very good news. It goes like this. We are all, you and I, so messed up that God himself had to come as one of us incarnate in the flesh to show us what it is to be truly human. 
He had to actually come to show us what it means to perfectly fulfill the will of God, to to, to perfectly fulfill the will of God for humanity, to live perfectly. He had to show up to show us that. And the good news goes on and it says, though we are, you and I are so messed up and cannot really truthfully seem to get our acts together, if we're honest, that God himself came to show us how much he loves us. He came to show you, to show me, to show us how much he loves us. And the way that he loves us is by becoming one of us, living as one of us. The entire human experience Jesus of Nazareth experienced, he lives for us, but he also dies in our place for a purpose and for a reason. And the reason was to break the power of sin and of death and of Satan and of hell. That's why he has come to us, to give messed up people like me and like us the power to change. This is part of the reason that he has come, is to give us power to change. And so the incarnation of Jesus brings the pardon. It brings the power. It brings the promise of God that is necessary for our change. He doesn't just come to give us a set of doctrines to believe, though Jesus does come to shift our beliefs in serious ways about who God is. But he also comes to transform our character, your and I's character, from the inside to our outside. He has work that he wants to do in us. And so he comes to change our hearts and he comes to train our parts. It's part of the work that he has come for, which means something. It means that Jesus takes the lead. But it also means that you and I partner with him and participate with him in this transformational work that he's doing in us, the transformation of our character, sanctification, life change is a team sport. He leads our sanctification and we have to exercise our wills and exercise our parts and exercise our lives to follow him where he is taking us. We've, um, we, we've really kind of centered on this theme this Christmas that the, the joy of Christ, that's what Christmas is about. The joy of our Christmases, the joy of every single Christmas is Jesus Christ. And so when you are tempted, Christian, when you are tempted to think that you are beyond change, I want you to remember this phrase, the joy of Christmas is Jesus Christ. And this means that he has some work left to do in me. When you're feeling stuck, when you're feeling unable to change, there is work that he is presently doing and wanting to do in you and I. Let's dive into our text this morning. We're in Titus chapter 2. It's in the New Testament, nearing the end of the New Testament. It comes after 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Then you'll see Titus. It's the short three-chapter letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor named Titus who was on an island, Crete, in modern-day Greece. 
He's picking up mid-sentence. He's been instructing Titus on how Titus is to lead this church that he is in charge of. And he's, he's instructed Titus to, to teach older men and to teach older women and to teach younger men and to teach younger women. And then he says in verse 11, and this is where we're going to be this morning, Titus 2.11 says this. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. That word is epiphany. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright lives, godly lives in this present age as we wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior who gave himself for us to redeem us from all of our lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord this morning. What does it mean for us that the grace of God has appeared? What does that mean? What's, what's, what's all that about? The grace of God has appeared. It means that, that God himself has come into our gritty, our world, and our gritty realities to live as one of us. And he hasn't just come to test the waters and to see if maybe even God could do it, but he's actually come into our reality, into our reality of brokenness, to come against it and to deliver us out of it. Jesus has come to you and I to bring us into his salvation. He's come into our reality, lived to bring us into his salvation, to make you and I his new creation. That's part of what Jesus is actively doing in the moment. He is making us a new creation. He's brought us this miracle of character change, which is part of the salvation that he brings to all people. Old men, old women, young men, young women. Character change. God brings to you for all. All of us need it. The word that Paul uses for salvation here is this Greek word, it's soterios. And we see it oftentimes translated in our Bibles as salvation. The word can also be translated as deliverance. And I think that deliverance, it, it, it brings a kind of a different mindset. We're being delivered up out of something and into another thing. The deliverance, the salvation that God brings us is far bigger than you and I are often tempted to think or believe. It's way bigger, more all-encompassing. This deliverance and salvation that Jesus brings to us has past, present, and future implications. Here is what I mean. If you've been around all of life for a little while, this is going to sound a bit familiar to you. Jesus has delivered you and I from the penalty for our sin. Through faith in Christ, we are delivered fully and finally from the penalty that God meets out on sinful humanity for our sin. It means that you and I have been pardoned from his wrath and from hell past implications, but it also has present implications too. Jesus is delivering you and I from the power of our sin. He is delivering you and I from the power that sin holds over us. We are being, present tense, transformed. 
New power is coming to us through God himself. And it doesn't just have past or present, but it also has future implications. Jesus will deliver you and I fully and finally from the presence of all sin. So hard to get my mind around this idea. No more murder. No more theft. No more blasphemy. No more envy. No more conniving. No more abuse. Stay with me. It's an alarm. They'll shut it off here in a second. No more abuse. No more scandal. No more theft. No more betrayal. That's what Jesus promises to us. Power for our past, all of it. Power for our present, now. Power for our future as well. Whenever we come across this word salvation in our Bibles, it's an opportunity for you and I. When you come across, when you read this word saved, saving, salvation in your Bibles, there's an opportunity in front of you and I. And here is what we can be seeing. That the salvation that Jesus brings deals uh, with my past, but it doesn't stop there. It deals with my present, which means it provides me a new way today. Because Jesus is with me through his spirit, I can say no to sin's persuasion. And I can say yes to what pleases God. That's the power that he's delivering and bringing us to today. And it doesn't just deal with our yesterday and our today, but it also deals with all of our tomorrows. Salvation encompasses all of our time, all of our years. God is gracious to his people. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Grace is this word that the Bible uses a lot. And it's a word that we as Christians and in Christian communities, we use this word grace a lot too. And anytime we use words frequently, our overuse can tend to have a cheapening effect on them. If we're not careful about bringing definition and clarity to these words. So we'll say things like, you know, we all need grace. Or, but for the grace of God go I. I don't even really know what that exactly means. It's a strange sentence structure. We'll say, man, God has really been gracious to me in this season. And all of these things are very true when we use them. These statements are true. That's why they become cliches, because they have been so used. But I want to challenge you, church, to, to when we use these words and when we think about these things, when we express ourselves in these very Christianized Bible words, we want to, I, I would love for you to bring definition and clarity clarity to them. How has God been gracious to you? Man, he has been really gracious to me this week by revealing some sin to me and, and then urging me. I just had a sense that he was just urging me into his presence to confess it. And then I'd sinned against somebody else and he urged me into their presence to confess that. Maybe that sounds like a nightmare for you, but when we step into those things, when we step into that kind of practice of confessing our brokenness to God and confessing it to the people that we have harmed, incredible relief is at our fingertips. Change is at our fingertips. So we want to bring definition to, to how we use these kinds of words. Let's, let's, let's go there with one another. We want to define them and use them thoughtfully. Here's a definition of grace that you probably haven't heard before. The reason you haven't heard it before is because I wrote it earlier this week, and I think it's pretty good, honestly. It's not the only definition out there, but I've really been enjoying just what this means as I've been chewing on it. Here it is. Grace is the generous kindness of God that cannot be earned, only 
freely given by him to undeserving, grateful recipients. Grace is the generous, it's the abundant, it's the overflowing kindness. Kindness is his disposition toward his people. Grace is the the generous kindness of God that cannot be earned. We can't claim it. We can't say, you owe me. But only it can only be given by him at his discretion to undeserving but really grateful people, recipients. Grace means that God has come into our reality. He's come to you and I into our reality as one of us. And he hasn't just come in to test the waters and see what we're up against. It's not what Jesus is doing in coming to us. He's come into our reality to make war against evil, to make war against darkness, to make war against this brokenness that we live within and rescue us from it. Jesus has come to you and I to bring us into an enormous salvation. Perhaps I'm overstating my case through repetition, but I do not think this case can be overstated. Jesus Christ is the generous kindness of God to you and I. And we do not deserve him, and we do not deserve his benefits, but he joyfully comes to give us both. Grace, Jesus gives grace his benefits. Pardon from our past, new power to say yes to what he loves. And he also gives us promise that our Father will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us who believe. This is part of the promise. And so I want to ask you, I don't know everyone in the room. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you love him? He calls every man, every woman, every child to come to him and to lay our burdens, our brokenness, our funk, all of the burden that we carry at his feet to confess it to him And then to entrust ourselves to him and to follow him. He is the God who is with us. He will never leave his people nor forsake his people. His heart toward us is gentle and lowly. He says, come to me and take my yoke upon you when you are weary. And I will show you a new way. This Jesus is alive. He's not a dead prophet of the past. He rules and reigns over all things. He has raised from the dead. For the grace of God has appeared, epiphany. He's appeared. He's come as a child. He's come into our reality, bringing salvation for all people. What surprises me about this passage is that God's grace isn't squishy. It's not vague. It's not delicate. It's the sturdy kind of generosity, actually, that trains people, you and I, for the good stuff of life, for the hard stuff of life, and for everything in between. And so a question that we need to be asking ourselves is, but how does God's grace actually train us? The incarnation actually shows you and I that Jesus stays with us to teach us and to train us. 
in his way, I think of Jesus as fulfilling a lot of roles. I think of him as Lord, I think of him as leader, I think of him as redeemer, I think of him as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, I think of him as the son of God, but until these last few weeks when I've been in this text, I have not really been thinking of him as my trainer, the one who trains. But if you think about it, it makes perfect sense that if Jesus is making disciples, that's what a discipler does. That's who a discipler is. Another word for disciple is apprentice. If you are apprenticing yourself to someone, that person you are apprenticing yourself to trains you in certain practices and acts and skills and crafts, and Jesus himself trains us. And so if we see Jesus as our trainer, and he is, this means at least two things for us. It means, number one, that we need help. And number two, it means that Jesus is our help. There are real things sabotaging our functional holiness. There are real things sabotaging our character. Um, This text in Titus names a few of them. We find these categories of ungodliness. We find a category of worldly passions. And in verse 14, we find lawlessness too. We need help. And Jesus is our help. And so while there are these things that are sabotaging you and I, there's also this new power that is brought to you and I, not by something inside of us, not by our intellect, not by our will, not by our devotion, not by anything that we originate within, but actually brought to us by someone outside of us, which means that Jesus doesn't just come to diagnose a problem, tell us what it is, and then leave us on our own with our own resources but he actually comes to both diagnose the problem and give us the new power for change and for transformation. He trains us in his way. And so our power to change comes from God being with us. And if you and I are going to lay hold of this new power for change that that Jesus brings to us, we have to remember something. We have to remember that God is with us. That's one of his titles. Emmanuel, God with us. So, Jesus wants the change that you and I want. That thing that you're deep down aching to change, you know displeases him. You know you keep falling into the same hole even though you see it every time. He wants the change that you want as well. So much so that he has filled us and given us his spirit. But part of that process of change is we also need to name the things that we need change from. In Titus 2, God starts with things we need to renounce. That word renounce can be translated disown. I think that brings really good clarity to that word renounce. We need to disown our ungodliness and our worldly passions and our lawlessness. Ungodliness is this category that describes how you and I just, we don't really care what God wants. That's what ungodliness is. It's this big, broad category where we just don't really care. We're not thinking about him when we start our day, when we're at lunch midday, when we're ending our day, we're just not thinking about him. So we feel some things, and when we feel those things, we consult ourselves. And when we need some things, we'll go to other people or we'll uh, go to the resources that we actually have at our disposal. We're not devoted to him in any way. We're not even thinking about him. 
we're devoted to ourselves, to the people around us. We're all about number one, but in this case, we've actually got the wrong number one here. We are created. He is creator. He is the right number one. He is the maker of everyone and everything. He is number one, not me. Ungodliness is this big category where we just don't care what God wants. We're just not thinking about him. And worldly passions, literally translated, is lusts of the cosmos. Think about it. The lusts of the cosmos. That's worldly passions. It's this narrower category that starts to bring flesh. It gets down into this granular detail, all describing all of the different ways that we are actually all about ourselves. And so you and I desire, here's some, some categories, some way, or not categories, but just um, I want to put some flesh on these bones here. We desire to be in authority. We desire to be in control. Like we, we struggle with this. Everybody in some fashion struggles with this. And one way that it often shows up is we are unwilling to be under authority. It reveals that we are a proud people. More, we're, uh, we're unfaithful to the people around us and we use them. We use them, we betray them, we abandon them, we hurt them, we wound them with our words. We love money and materials and luxury, Right? We sacrifice all kinds of our resources, all kinds of our time, all kinds of our thoughts, all kinds of our peace in order to get the things, in order to acquire the things that we are not settled unless we have them. My precious, right? Like that's what we do for material goods around us. We have an insatiable desire to be right too, to win arguments, to be on top, to get the upper hand, to gain control. We use people for our own sexual gratification. We're self-serving. We want to look at what we want to look at, use who we want to use. We use substances to numb our pain. Our pain is real, but we go to things that actually wound us and wound others in order to bring healing, but it's all a facade. None of it works. The drugs don't work. The alcohol doesn't work. The pills don't work. The sex doesn't work. None of it actually works. It leaves us in a deeper and darker hole than we began with in the first place. We deceive in order to avoid hardship or to acquire possessions or to acquire position. We cheat, we take what, is, what isn't ours, we talk smack, we gossip, we tear people made in God's image down. I am guilty of every single one of those things. Not many of you were alive. Maybe no one in the room was alive when World War II ended. But if you have family members who served in uh, World War II or you're a history buff, you'll recognize some of these photographs. Um, up on the right side of your screen, you'll see a couple of men waving out a window. That's Winston Churchill on the right. Looking down, this is Victory Day in London. The Nazis have just surrendered. The flip side on the left of that is the United States in time square in New York. You see a little square sign up there. It says the Nazis quit. This picture down in the lower right-hand corner with the American flag, that's actually um, a few months later as Japan has surrendered to the United States. There are thousands and thousands of people flooding into the streets of these various cities in the world rejoicing that at least for that time the suffering and the killing has ended. 
It was profound. We just had Aaron and Megan Gibbs here with us last week, and they're serving in Slovakia and doing a lot of good work in Ukraine. And I pray that these same kinds of pictures will be in front of our view soon as that unjust war ends. I want you to remember some of those pictures that that look, even at a time when that war in Ukraine ends. And I want you to be thinking about this. Similarly, as these crowds here where every human being, that means you and I, were we to disown our own ungodliness, were we to disown our worldly passions, the relief and the gain that our world would experience would overwhelm us with sobs and tears. And we would flood people, humanity would flood the world's streets with joy-filled, clinking glasses, hugging, yelling, shouting, showing the newspapers. Can you believe that all of this ungodliness and worldly passion that works against the race of humanity is over? I think that that will be a picture of Christ's coming. People will flood the streets. This is some of this future promise that you and I long for too. Ungodliness and worldly passions work against us. And no doubt, disowning our worldly passions, our ungodliness is incredibly hard. Why? Because we love this stuff. It comforts us in our pain momentarily. We're addicted to some of it. Like there is, the reason that we go to these things, the way that we try to win an argument is because it never feels good to lose one. We always want to be on top. But there's something for us to understand about the reality of, of what is called liberating restrictions. See, it's popular in our day and in our culture to believe that in order to have true freedom, we've got to have no limits. We've got to have no restrictions. But let me ask, is a human being truly able to flourish in the freedom of an open sea? Is a human being truly able to flourish by just having unrestricted sexual activity with anybody you want? Is a human being truly able to flourish by taking anything you want from anyone you want whenever you want? And what about that? What about the other person? And what if you are the other person and they take it from you? Is that true freedom? We have to admit that there are many restrictions in our life that aid our ability to flourish. Timothy Keller calls these liberating restrictions. It's the string holding the kite that enables it to fly. We were created with boundaries by God for our flourishing, not for our lack. It's for the freedom of godliness that Jesus comes to set us free from the bondage of worldly passions, which lead us away from God, not toward him. And our ungodliness and our worldly passions are working against us. And we need to understand this. You and I need to understand this, that these worldly passions, when we give in to these things, they enslave us. These unchecked desires enslave us. And the thing that is so sinister about our addictions and these enslavements is that they control us while we think we're in control of them. 
We think we are managing them while it's they, it's those things that are actually managing us. And not only that, but they wound our consciences. They grieve the heart of God. They pile on fear and guilt and shame and often render us ineffective in God's kingdom. A man without self-control, Proverbs 25 says, is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So we need to know this. Here's where we'll end this morning. A leading part of our training involves the good boundary of self-control. It's interesting to me in this text that the very first thing that Paul names is self-control, but what he has been naming for the men earlier in Titus 2 is self-control. He names it one other time earlier in Titus and another time or two later in Titus. He's talking about this self-control. This is part of this new power that God gives his people. Jesus comes training you and I to disown ungodliness and worldly passions. And so he's freeing us from something negative and delivering us into something positive. And the positive here is to live self-controlled, godly. That's the opposite of ungodliness. Self-controlled, godly, and upright lives. Where? When? Then, no. Back then, no. In the present age is the language that Paul uses here. Self-control is perhaps one of the least talked about aspects of the Jesus way. How how many times have you heard a sermon on self-control? Like blatantly. Hands? I don't think I've ever preached one. This is my introduction. More coming. This, this little talked about aspect of Jesus' way shows us a reality. The fact that, that Jesus wants to give you and I self-control teaches us something. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a part of our salvation and the Holy Spirit is wanting to check our desires and lead us toward God rather than the way we have been going away from him. This self-control we need to understand is a gift from the Holy Spirit. It is not a power or a strength that we have to originate from within ourselves. So if you're cringing going, I've got to do more, I've got to do more, I've got to do more, wrong mindset, stop, rewind, start over. The Holy Spirit is now with us creating a set of new desires within us. And self-control is also like a skill or like a muscle that we, we grow in our ability to use it over time. Here is the key to growing in self-control. It is not to look inward, but it is to get our eyes looking upward. David Mathis says it like this, true self-control is not about bringing ourselves under our own control, but under the power of Christ. That's our work. We bring ourselves to the real Jesus confessing and submitting and humbling and asking, requesting all of that. And he unleashes these new desires within us and gives us the opportunity both to escape temptation, but also to say yes to the things that matter to God. True self-control is about submission to our trainer. This Greek word for self-control is also sometimes translated as prudent. 
And prudent means acting with and showing care and thought for the future. Acting with, showing care and thought for our futures. So then I asked Jesus, what do you want for my tomorrow? Because often what is happening in my today is working against my tomorrow. You know this. When you stay awake until 3 a.m., when you have to work at 8 a.m., that works against the start of your workday, does it not? How we end our nights oftentimes affects greatly the next days in front of us. The things that we are going to late in the evening, the things that we are giving ourselves to today affect how we live tomorrow. The way that we hide things today affects the way that I show up in in people's lives and, and, and one another's lives and the way that I show up to the Lord tomorrow as well. Tim Keller says, self-control is the, uh, the ability to do the important thing rather than the urgent thing. Jesus appeared bringing us salvation by giving himself over to that death on the cross, which broke the power of sin and made atonement for you and I. And Jesus didn't just stay dead, but he rose from the dead as proof that he is alive, ruling and reigning, in control, purifying. This is incremental, moment by moment, painful often, change, making us, filling us with new desires and making us eager to do good to anyone who needs it, anybody, even our enemies. And as more proof of his goodness to us, he's given you and I his spirit who lives within us, who cleanses our consciences, who urges us to confession to him and to one another. He gives us new desires for godliness and for uprightness and for self-control. And all of a sudden, we we become awake to the fact that it's the love of Jesus Christ that is controlling us. Ask anybody who has lived a life of discipleship to Jesus for a period of time, and they will tell you that it is something mysterious that has come up in them, that their desires have been rewritten over time, and they've fallen into those holes over over and over again, but there's something, someone who continues to come back and to whisper in their ears and to say, go to Jesus Christ, confess your sins. He is just and merciful to forgive and to put us on a new path. And he continually extends his mercy to you and I day after day after day after day. And so this week, when your desires rise up within you, and they will, and the whisperer, tempts you to believe that you will never change. Remind yourself that you are not under his power. You have a new power. You're under the power of Jesus Christ. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So what does it look like to bring yourself under the power of Christ? Can you answer that question for yourself over the next couple of songs and the quietness of your own heart, just where you are? What does it look like for you to bring yourself to the real Jesus and to relent and to ask him for help, to believe him? Here is a false gospel that I want to warn us against and then we'll be done. 
This false gospel that we often whisper at ourselves is once I get myself under control, then God will accept me. Once I get myself under control, then he's going to love me a little bit more. Then the pressure is off and I can come to him with that clean conscience. But it's actually him who wants to clean your conscience. So it's us who has to come to him with our dirty, like calcified, ungodly conscience and say, help cleanse me. The true gospel is this, that God loves me so much that he has given me his son to redeem me from my ungodliness, to draw me out of my worldly passions and my lawlessness. And he has given me his spirit to teach me how to bring myself under the power of his son to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. Father, sink the good news deep into us, please the good news of how much you love us, the good news of how much, how far you go for us, the good news that Jesus, you have broken the power of sin, the power of death, the power of hell, the power of Satan. You have transferred us from that kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and into the kingdom of your marvelous light. And if you are speaking to souls this morning, drawing them to your goodness, would you continue to pursue and never relent? Remind and teach and impress upon every single person in this room that you are the God who is with us and who can be trusted, and therefore we can entrust ourselves to you all of our days for all of our past, all of our present, and all of our future. We love you. Merry Christmas, God. Thank you for coming to us and giving us this season of rehearsing how you've come. And all of God's people joyfully said, amen.